Buddy, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Hello, I am Daryl. And I am Petros. And welcome to episode three of Getting Defoe You. From Heaven's Gate to the present day, join us as we get to know Willem Defoe in this dedicated Defoe podcast. So I think we're starting to settle into the swing of things. The Defoe commotion train is uh, chugging along with down two films, Wonder Friend, Wonder Foe, even Stevens. Uh, Petros, as we head into lucky number three uh how are you doing this week how are you getting getting on i'm i'm doing fine you know what? i've got i've got my suntan lotion on because la is a, generally a bit of a warm climate I, I, I need to get ready i've i've been wheeling up the press to start printing some money i'm inspired by this film um there's a lot of lot of lot of fun stuff to talk about right in this this william friedkin crime drama and we, we really got into it with our fantastic guest daryl bear we, we go all over the place right what, what, what? well we uh i mean first and foremost as we uh trickle a little tease at the end of last week's episode you get two for the price of one on the daryl situation this week which was delightful for us daryls but for you petros it was a fucking nightmare you didn't know what was going on <laughs> um so that is a lot of fun. And I think, you know, not to spoil our feelings on this film too soon, but we were living for To Live and Die in L.A. I I think oh. I, I, again, I, I want to contain myself, but I'm, I'm a big fan. I am a very big fan of this movie. And now I just want to wear a Hawaiian shirt, pop open the fucking collar, wear the tightest denim you can find, sprint across a road to a pounding synth-based 80s soundtrack. <laughs> what just what an absolute uh, a joy it was to cover this one in the first season as well. And a film I had not heard of uh, prior to this podcast either. And now my life will never be the same. It's a big claim to make. I don't know about you. Yeah, yeah I've been wang-chunging <laughs> all over the place with, with this soundtrack in, in my ears. <laughs> And and just just having a hoot, and I had a real yeah real hoot with this one. Kind of looking at an early villainous turn from Defoe, something that many fans of 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 the face that is Defoe will be aware of, and kind of well like yeah they they know him as a villain, but this is that this is I think it's his earliest villain role. So where it all began, and I think this film has one of my favourite quotes ever. So look out for me dropping that in our yes. chat with uh, Daryl Bear as we get into it. Some great quotes, uh, a great car chase sequence, one of the most incredible soundtracks I've ever seen, or heard even, because because apparently I can yeah, consume music with my eyes. Synesthesia, that's, baby. That's, that's the word it is, which I'll immediately forget because I'm very <laughs> ill. Um, but we've, we've got it all to come in this episode, a delight of an episode to come. But before we jump into that, uh, Petros, if you'd be so kind if the people want to be the friends of the podcast where can they find us on the socials and such business as that so you can find us wherever you are right now look you're probably you're there you're there you're scrolling on twitter you're scrolling on instagram isn't you I see you, I see you, I see you, you get in that weekly report of your screen time usage, you're on one of those, so whilst you're there, all you've got to type in the little search bar is Defoe You Pod, and that's where you'll find us, at Defoe You Pod, or 
if you want to drop us an email, you know, kick it old school, 1985, baby. We're to live and die in LA. So drop us an email at defoeupod at gmail.com. Outstanding stuff as ever. So without further ado, let's dive right in to episode three of Getting Defoe You. It's to live and die in LA. And we shall see you on the other side. That's half an hour. Getting to know you, getting to know all about Willem. Getting to like you by watching all your films. So this week we head to the shady underworld of Los Angeles in 1985 in the neo-noir thriller to live and die in L.A. Defoe stars as Eric Masters, a dangerous counterfeiter on the run from a vengeful Secret Service agent after taking his partner's life. Now, joining us in getting to know Defoe a little better this week and see if this movie is counterfeit for purpose or if it just dies before it can live in L.A. is co-host of the Sudden Double Deep and is Paul Dana OK Podcasts. It's Daryl Bear. Daryl, thank you so much for joining. How the devil are you doing today? Daryl, thank you so much for having me on. This is wicked. I'm doing great. I'm not going to do the thing I always do on podcasts, which is talk about like how well I am in conjunction with the weather. It's nice out, so I'm sitting out in the garden. You did it anyway. You did it anyway. You I said know. you're not going to do it. You did it. I know. Oh, oh dear. You see, the thing about us, Daryl's Petros, which you'll quickly find out, is that we are verified, certified, bona fide mad lads. <laughs> um <laughs> so you've, you've got a lot of that to uh, contend with but as ever when we when we sort of uh, dive deep into the world that is Defoe uh, we always keen to know with our guests how well you know Defoe as well so you know Daryl to kick us off uh, mm. do you recall your first Defoe film yes um, this is going to possibly be a weird one it's I think it was either Platoon no I think it was probably Platoon in fairness um, it was either Platoon or Mississippi Burning <laughs> because of course yeah (laughs) Yeah. such a weird yeah when i was in my teens and i think it was like bbc2 and channel 4 used to do like really good runs of of like grown-up films and maybe in a pretentious little wanker essentially Mm. was just like oh i'll catch that and yeah it was one or the (laughs) other but it was around the same sort of time i caught them both I sort of, I remember that sort of BBC Two run. Maybe I think in my teens as well, probably fifteen or so years ago. I just remember just Platoon being on, mm-hmm. and I watched it. For, I don't know why I watched it, but then I just remember maybe I was a bit too young to get some of the full context of it and like you know how hard it hits. But mm-hmm. I remember coming away from that film at like fifteen, being just like changed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was like, I'm fifteen years old. I'm not ready for these kind of emotions. So I thought, you know what? We'll come back to that in fifteen years and start a podcast and revisit that. <laughs> Stick and, um... a pin in that. Yeah. What, did 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 Defoe give a lasting impression from from Platoon? Was, was that 100%. something you took away from it, or was it the? Oh God, yeah, definitely. Um, it, obviously, that that film is like you know Charlie Sheen, but you got the kind of toss up between both Tom Berenger there as the the hard nosed guy versus Willem Dafoe for most of that film and yeah like Willem's quite genial in that one in comparison and and yeah that definitely kind of warmed me to him and then yeah Christ Mississippi Burning was just yeah that was a a really interesting one because I was kind of like you know oh Gene Hackman it's it's Lex Luthor this is gonna be great (laughs) and then like you know obviously incredibly heavy subject matter as well was just like oh shit maybe I'm maybe I'm not uh, you know 
emotionally equipped for this just yet. I think what I think maybe what we're learning in our first season, and maybe this will this will change as the seasons go on. But in your teens, you you're you're about as quick for Spider Man one, maybe a bit of two. Don't you dare go near platoon if you're 15 years old. No. You cannot handle it. No, is the general thing. But obviously, with that said, you know, uh, platoon, Mississippi Burning, Spider Man, with the phobian prominent features in all of these movies. What would you all as of right now, your general sort of views on Defobie, is there anything about Defoe that you find um, sort of stands out for you as well? I love that he's able to kind of just jump between so many different kinds of projects as well. Uh, that that's the that's the kind of thing that kind of gets me more than anything. Um, like he's one of my most watched actors, according to Letterbox. Something like forty nine of his films, because like no matter what kind of yes. mood you're in, there's going to be a that's Defoe right. film in there for you yeah like yeah. you know if you're sure, if yeah. you're into your if, if you're into your your david lynch's or your john waters you know if you like erotic thrillers or if you like you know abel ferrara films or you know like there's there's a whole bunch of you know there, there's gonna be something in there for you essentially yeah something we talked about before is he seems to be like a lot of directors guy like mm. where he's like worked with the same director multiple times like you mentioned abel ferrara you got like paul schrader in there i can't remember the guy his name off the top of my head but the guy directed Eternity's Gate I think he directed Basquiat yeah. as well and another one with Defoe Wes Anderson obviously Robert Eggers it's like yeah 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 it's, it's kind he of crazy that like yeah he is he is he is the guy right <laughs> he is that like it's insane that the kind of the the width the width of his filmography and I imagine his cock as well let's get let's get the cock chat out nice and early he's got it's a long hogged man <laughs> mm. <laughs> we we are nothing else if but uh hogman hogman on this podcast but obviously with with that obviously platoon being a prominent feature for all of us we you know cast our sort of attention to um a film just preceding platoon a film when Defoe was even that early on his career really on the cusp of sort of breaking through because his talent was very very prominent from an, from an early filmography standpoint um so at this point in terms of to live and die in LA we throw the fastball over to yourself Mr Patros Batsilivis for to live and die in LA's de facts and the figures Oh, I got some defacts and the figures for you here, guys. So it is written and directed by William Friedkin, based on a novel of the same title by Gerard Petrovich. The film stars William Peterson, John Pankow, Deborah Furr, uh, John Turturro, Darlene Fugel, Dean Stockwell, and our boy, of course, Willem Dafoe. It has a new wave soundtrack by Wang Chung, a shot by legendary cinematographer Robbie Muller. The film was released on November 1st, 1985, on a budget of six million, with a box office return of 17 million. $307,019, making it the 51st highest grossing film of 1985, sandwiched between Invasion USA and is ahead of The Falcon and the Snowman, which sounds like a made-up movie or a Marvel property. Uh, it is currently holding a 7.3 out of 10 on IMDb, 86% on Rotten Tomatoes on 49 reviews, and an audience score of 79% on over 10,000 uh, reviews. And the critic consensus for this, and this is, this is one of my favourites so far, is with coke fiends, car chases, and Wang Chunga 
galore. To Live and Die in LA is perhaps the ultimate 80s action thriller. We get our first Defoe sighting at 7 minutes and 53 seconds and an absolute doozy of an opening line for our man. Buddy, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Before he blows a man's face clean off. Yes, please. That, ladies and gentlemen, were your defacts and your defigures. Oh boy, and do I love the facts and the figures. Coke, cars, and chung, the three C's that I always <laughs> look for <laughs> in my movies. Fantastic stuff. That was it. The, the synopsis of the film. Uh, we have a secret service agent stopping at nothing to bring down the maniacal counterfeiter who killed his own partner, who was only, as they always are, days from retirement. Now, Daryl, in terms of To Live and Die in LA, uh, now for me, this was a first viewing for this mm. one. I've watched it twice now because I obviously we'll get into this. I watched it once and I was like, I think I'm in love with this film. <laughs> um, then I've watched it a second time since. For yourself, have you seen this before? And if so, like, when, what was the first time? When was the first time you saw the film? Yeah, so uh, what were your first impressions of To Live and Die in LA? Right. So yeah, the first time I saw this film was May last year. It was almost, it was almost exactly a year to, to, to when I rewatched this for, for this podcast. I don't know why it took me so long. And this is one of those ones where, you know, I just need to kind of give myself a swift kick in the nuts because I've not seen this, you know, 39 and I hadn't seen this damn film and it's fucking great, isn't it? Yeah, first impressions pretty much identical to, to how I feel now. It's it's incredibly stylish and it, it has that very specific kind of tip <laughs> into the 80s, into the mid 80s where, you know, between this, like, it was like a visual and tonal through line between something like this and something like Michael Mann's Manhunter and then also to a degree kind of Tony Scott's kind of Beverly Hills Cop 2 in terms of like the vibes. Yeah, dig it. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Beverly Hills Cop 2 because, like, there is a whole thing with, like, yeah, 1987, there's all these kind of interesting films that feel like they borrow elements from this, mm. like... And it's weird that this is, seems to be like the first of its kind with looking back now, like this seems to be like the first film that maybe did that whole like, I'm too old for this shit. Or like, I've got three days left on the job. That exact and, then, and then like the whole, and I think with Beverly Hills Cop too, it kind of, you can definitely see that maybe they went, oh, this is the direction we need to take part two. Mm -hmm. Very much seems like the bones of this like i think as petra said you find it in so many sort of hard-boiled gritty down and dirty cop films that would follow on from this for sort of years and years to come and then i think it's just a lot of stuff you can trace back to to live and die in la because you know as, as we say like the the cop who's days from retirement which is kind of the uh i guess the unintentionally funny trope of like as soon as you say that that is a guaranteed death sentence. You are going to die. <laughs> so I figure if I was ever, or, well, I suppose the Secret Service, we should really say they are Secret Service agents. Never tell anyone that you're retiring. <laughs> yeah, Just yeah. don't turn up one day. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and you, you might make it, you might make it, um, you know, back home, I think is the, uh, is the secret to that one. Uh, so before him being preliminarily, preliminarily, great word, retired, we've got Agent Richard Chance, played by William Peterson, and his partner Jimmy Hart, played by Michael Green, um, in quite quite a chaotic opening <laughs> at the hotel, which gives us really sort of the, to sort of steal a term from Friedkin himself, kind of like the kaleidoscope of crimes that the Secret Service deals with, which is incredible to me because they deal with obviously high-ranking, like, political figures 
And then also counterfeiting, which seems mm. so insane to me. Is that it goes from one, the stopping, and uh, I think it was a, a, a terrorist, obviously with all the, the, the dynamite and such strapped to himself, and then it just seems, it feels like it's gonna be like a lower stakes film following that. But I think as everyone knows, everyone's just sweating, everyone's on edge, everyone's tense. I'm sweating, I'm on edge for the next ninety minutes of this movie as well. With so that's you know, it gives you kind of the grainy, gritty feel of what this movie's gonna be about. How was sort of the opening for you as well, Daryl? Yeah, it's it's I, I love in the fact that it kind of it's a bit of a rug pull because you think, oh, this is what this film's gonna be about. This is, I mean, we're, we're really hitting the ground running with this. That's what this film's about. And then, no, this is just a, oh, this is just another day in the life of these these Secret Service agents. It's like, oh, cool. Okay, so it's not then. The counterfeiting thing must be because it's um, something to do with the Treasury or something. Yeah, it's a federal crime, right? You'd think it's it was like, well, if FBI, FBI then, surely. But, you know, because it's like a Treasury-based thing, that's probably where that kicks in. I, d- I don't know. America's got so many different weird law thingies and systems it's maddening it's crazy shit i think that intro as well kind of really sets us not just obviously like the look of the film is very 1985 but we're to believe that that they are like doing detail for ronald reagan right there so it very much puts us in we are in ronald reagan's america as well which you can't help but think is i'm not like well i am pretty sure what william friedkin is trying to tell us about Mm. ronald reagan's america through this film and it i guess you could look at that opening is it like because the film almost starts twice doesn't it because you get that you get that opening opening kind of gambit almost like kind of james bond pre-title like sequence and then you kind of get the the opening of the film and i couldn't help but think like what would this film have been like if our kind of opening was the title sequence into fucking chance on on that bridge about to jump off like would that have been more of a bolt like would that be really ballsy or i don't know i'm kind of in two minds about that the opening bit i I do enjoy it at the same time but like i don't know i I like the kind of bleakness of of just opening a film with a a character looking like they could potentially be committing suicide and like almost being thrown into the thick of it i think it establishes that friendship though doesn't it and that working relationship that those two guys have yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. but yeah that old boy he's um it's, it's almost like he's got that kind of role that like dennis farina would have had like he must have like missed the open call yes. or something. <laughs> yeah. If, if if this 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 film feels like it could have been a Michael Mann film, uh, mm-hmm. and it's like if Michael Mann are directing this, it probably would have still been William Peterson because they're kind of they're kind of you. buddies. And then it it would have been Dennis Farina in that role, which would have been if you could make this film better, it's Dennis Farina in that role. Even though it would have been a shame to kill off Dennis Farina in the first fifteen <laughs> minutes of the movie, because he's. <laughs> I think what you said though definitely speaks to freaking, doesn't it? In that, like, he's able to like jump like from something like cruising or or the exorcist or like any of his run bug or any of those films and this is this is another one of those films that's just like he doesn't make another one that's like this either this was like almost like he was scratching mm. a specific itch creatively well he's kind of catching the zeitgeist of the 1980s right and i know that there's a lot of like rumor and speculation out there that michael mann tried to sue him over him basically ripping off miami vice but it's kind of like a hollywood legend and i think Friedkin has said himself like that's a load of hokum like mm. that's not but like it, yeah it kind of does borrow a bit of Miami Vice it almost is a perfect partner film with oh, God, Michael yeah. Mann's Manhunter there's there's shades of like heat in this as well I think yeah. like I think the, the, if 
if Friedkin had kind of made more movies like this, him and Michael Mann kind of would, would have been like two sides of the same coin, I guess, that Friedkin's look on it would have been far more nihilistic like this movie is. Sure, and I think why I, I think what I liked about the intro as well, especially on the second viewing, is that like, and I suppose what I wasn't expecting is how graphic the film is sort of prepared to be as well, because I thought, when the terrorists are sort of pulled off the ledge, the, the implosion was just going to be sort of, well, the explosion is going to be implied. But then it's it's fucking a red mist and shocks. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, hot, hot damn. Like, this film is is ready to sort of not pull its punches. So, as you say, we're getting like a little kicker like that at the start, then, you know, it's very interesting to see where we're going to go sort of following on from that scene as well. Um, and obviously following the scene, you know, Quite fairly early into the film, we do get our uh, first glimpse of Willem Dafoe as Eric Masters, and it's it's a very it's like an interesting sort of opening for Masters. I found as well because one, I suppose, the novelty of seeing a young Dafoe who looks the same mm-hmm. really, like like time hasn't really touched him sort of that much. But he's got the slit back hair, he's got the black tee tucked into the black jeans, and he's got that silhouette of him running up the stairs, and then he's burning a painting as well, which I sort of find very interesting about his character. And obviously, as you find out, he's a counterfeiter who uses the money he makes from counterfeiting to buy art, then only to burn it and keep sort of repeating this process as well. Well, and make art, right? He's an artist himself. Like, he's like, he's like this kind of i don't know like that's how he's funding his art like his artwork is by counterfeiting and it's interesting that almost like the counterfeiting is like art in itself because it is so like we get that amazing sequence of just how beautifully put together mm. counterfeiting is that operation he's got which is yeah it just looks like it's i think it's one of my favorite sequences of of the film is that kind of basically like defoe in silence making that money out in this kind of shack in the desert it's yeah it's a fantastic basically step-by-step tutorial on how to <laughs> and how to counterfeit money um i was watching it with my partner who is uh, a teacher an art teacher and she was like daryl you didn't tell me screen printing was going to be in this film okay now i'm interested <laughs> uh but it's 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 like just a weirdly sort of hypnotic scene about the whole process and stuff as well. I know it's it's one of many scenes that are really capture you considering you're just watching a crime in process. And I suppose to throw the obvious question your way as well, Daryl, um, how do you sort of the counterfeiting scene and uh, basically the money-making tutorial, um, how did that sort of play for you as well? It's It draws you in, doesn't it? It's weirdly hypnotic. Like I could have watched Willem Dafoe, for, I mean, obviously it's like Hollywood hokum, but I could have watched him for the entire process from beginning to end several times over because it's, it's like when you fall yeah. down that kind of ch- that youtube hole of like watching those how does this get made videos <laughs> where it's like paper yeah. clips or bottles or yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. It's like, oh how, how do yeah. you make fake money okay cool i could watch more of this thanks yeah or like my big thing at the moment is watching those videos of people taking a really dirty rug and cleaning it like anything like that like a process <laughs> just like really yeah. gets me going so like watch it yeah if, oh, what, if there was like a live feed of a man printing money oh, fucking i'll get nothing done <laughs> it's because it, i think part of it is because it also it's, it's something that obviously we're not privy to like it's not something that you know, they don't do fucking tours yeah. of that side of the royal mint do they so like i think part of it is that you, you feel like you're on the inside of something and it's not just that same bullshit we've seen a million times of like uh them processing cocaine or something it's it's like a really like that's the thing yeah. that i love about this film as well like yeah. so many 80s yeah. films are just obsessed with coke 
which, you know, understandably because of the era. Again, this is makes it almost like a weird counterpoint to something like Wall Street as well, in that, you know, it's this obsession. But for, for Willem Dafoe's character, it's an obsession within the yeah. process, the art of creating money. Yeah. Instead of, I think all the all the cocaine that went into this film was in the making, right? As opposed to the, as opposed to on screen, it's it's all off screen cocaine. Like <laughs> I, I'm amazed this film looks so good. It does on a six million dollar budget when five million went on cocaine. <laughs> well, I mean, with that being said, um, I've sort of um, rabbit holed into a number of like special features into this film. Got the sort of Blu-ray hashtag not an ad, um, and there's loads of like great behind the scenes stuff, and one of them that. Uh, um, they got act, like an actual ex-con who was in prison for counterfeiting to sort of come on set and basically teach them how to do it, taught Willem Dafoe how to do it. So that is technically a skill he has in his arsenal Amazing. to counterfeit money if he so chooses. I, th- I assume he's probably good for money in this day and age. But in the close-ups of like the rubber-gloved hands sort of like scalping through stuff, that was the actual counterfeiter doing it and not Dafoe. I, Friedkin has said in interviews that they'd made about, I think it was about $1 million in counterfeit money throughout the whole process um they had three specific like mistakes and all of them so that they couldn't have gone out into the world that didn't stop it from happening some people from i think it was a non-union film and so some people did take the dollar bills out into the world uh someone's kid took it out and just went out to buy like candy and stuff immediately got called in The Secret Service got involved. The money kept getting traced back to the uh, production. And the poor, the prop master of the film, he said in an interview, he had to go down to like local police stations on six different occasions (laughs) to explain what the fuck was going on. I think, yeah, and Willem Dafoe was asked in an interview about the counterfeiting, and he said that, like, they spoke to the Secret Service guys, and they said, like, counterfeiting money is, is fairly easy, like it's the paper but like they managed to catch it so quickly because they just look at like basically your amazon like wish list and go oh so they're ordering this printing press they're ordering this stuff like they just they just figure out the parts that people are buying and the location and just kind of like nip it in the bud before it gets anywhere so i think like they're like there was no pushback to like actually showing the real thing so like yeah it is fairly easy and you can you can read a book and like learn how to do it but it's not worth doing because they're kind of they're so hot on it like to to actually catch you like i think it's like something ridiculous like six thousand like people charge for it a year in Mm. like in the states or something like that just a crazy statistic but you get films like this which you know i've never really sort of considered counterfeiting in you know like one way or the other but then i watch a film like this and i'm like counterfeiting is cool as Fuck, yeah. I want to be a counterfeiter, man. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I, I'll just, I'll just go to the school where my other half teaches and just start using their screen printing, just, to, <laughs> just, to, just to make some um, local currency here in Leeds. Um, if you are the Secret Service and you are listening, this is, this is a joke. I'm not actually, I'm not actually going to counterfeit stuff. I've got too much Defoe to get to to be in prison, quite frankly. But obviously, speaking of Defoe, um, you know, to jump into his character quite early on again, I thought this was like and really with all the cast i thought everyone was so well cast in this the foe especially 
And he spoke in interviews about Friedkin at the time, with obviously this being quite a low budget production, um, that they couldn't really afford like big name stars or mm. anything. But Friedkin quite intentionally wanted to have a number of actors who were either unknown or just didn't really have much work under their belt. So there'd be no pre-existing relationship with them really add to the reality of this movie as well, which I would definitely say worked in its favor. Defoe, I mean, for better or worse in the film, like I wanted to see more of Eric Masters and more of what made him tick. You know, we got, we got some Defoe booty. That was pretty good. I enjoyed that. (laughs) Gonna always go for a bit of that. We got, we got some Peterson hog. (laughs) Williams Um, Peterson. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) 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 <laughs> uh, so a lot, a lot of boxes being ticked. Definitely something I, I really enjoyed about the performance of Masters was it did always feel like under that sort of cool calm exterior like there was like this fire burning underneath like he could just fucking snap at any moment and apparently one of freaking's only like acting guidance things in the directing was that he used the word zen. That was the only direction he would ever give to foe um, which you know, in hindsight, makes a lot of sense with the character. But, you know, I, I guess, you know, P- Petros, obviously, we're a little bit biased towards Defoe on this podcast. But um, for such an early performance as well, you know, how did it sort of sit for you throughout the whole the whole endeavor? Yeah, I, I, I think that I think that he's absolutely great in this, right? He's kind of, you want to see more of him. Like, and it is that thing, like, it's interesting because they're very much playing with the good guys are are bad and the bad guy is bad and it's like you can kind of go i don't know at times you're like you almost masters you you get his logic you get why he's doing to for some of it what like do you know what I mean he's a principled man and you're like i can almost get on board with him i don't know why it's quite charismatic and it's quite a kind of I don't know, charming guy and he's got yeah he's got he's, he's got the way he works and it's like well, when, who are you supposed to root for? Because, like, William yeah. Peterson goes from, like, bad to worse throughout this film. <laughs> like, uh, Vukovic, like, goes from, like, good to bad, like, real fucking quick. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. who else, who else you go? Are you, are you going to root for Jane Leaves? Do you know what I mean? You go right, you root for, root, mm. root for the, yeah, like, or, 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 like, I don't know. I think the person, the person, the only person you could really root for in this film is Roof, right? The, the kind of put upon informant that Chance is kind sure, of keeping yeah. captive. So I've got a question for you guys here. So with that character, like, <laughs> do you think that she set up the guys with the diamond slash you know with the with the guy with the with the money strapped to him do you think she knew that that was actually an fbi sting i i lean towards that yeah Mm. i think she sees that as her way out because i think when when vukovic comes in at the end she's almost like shit i thought i was i thought i was out like what's this guy doing here do you know what i mean like like you kind of yeah, I feel I I think so. What about what about what about yourself, Daryl? Do you get that? Do you get that impression that it's? I feel like I have to ask which Daryl. <laughs> which one are you? Is it me? Which one yeah, I'm pointing. I'm pointing. Yeah, you can't see where I'm pointing. Yeah, that is the thing. <laughs> the technology, baby. Uh, yeah, yeah. Daryl Bear. Daryl Bear. Where 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 do you fall on it? First time I watched this, I thought, oh man, no, she's innocent and she's been sucked back into this, but. The second time, I was kind of like, oh, maybe not. Like, and I think it's kind of left ambiguous for that reason. I mean, like, like none of the women in this, like neither of the women in this really get a fair shake, really. You've got Defoe's mm-hmm. lady, who's basically like some sort of Harley Quinn type. 
essentially but even you feel like yeah. by the end of it she's she's putting on these these sexy videos for him and it's almost like she's kind of playing a role for him she's doing what she can in order to survive in his world and her running off at the end with with daphne from fraser was fucking incredible <laughs> <laughs> She uh, heard the blues are calling those tossed salad and scrambled eggs. Um, Daryl's gone. Daryl's down. Daryl's down. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they're calling again. They're calling again. Fantastic. (laughs) Nice. Zing. To live and die in tossed salad. I've I, I, I've got a question for you as well. It, it pertains to Rick Masters. Do you think that like the way that he kind of sets up Bianca for like her new life, basically is like I, I've got a present for you. Here's Daphne from Frasier on, on the couch and kind of like takes a blanket off of her to like reveal her to be like, and she's in her pants. Um, <laughs> the way he kind of sets it up. Do you think he knew that this was his his kind of card was Mark and his number was up? like did you do yeah do you feel like he knew that was the case yeah i mean like uh, either way like it was going to be a fresh start for her regardless like if he got out of things clean then he'd be off with some other side piece lady and you know if he's gonna die he was gonna die in la yeah yeah and the kind of the book ending <laughs> of like him burning his art at the beginning of the film to him burning his art you know all of the counterfeit stuff at the end of the film as well it's pretty cool symbolism well, you, you- what what about you what about yourself uh other daryl do you see that as a uh, him him kind of setting her up because he knew his card was marked it's 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 such an interesting thing isn't it and it it's with all the relationships in this film you know between um chance and vukovic and masters and um bianca was it was, yeah, that, bianca. was that his mm. bianca it, it's it's an interesting one and sort of freaking said in interviews as well this is kind of what this makes me think of that he saw the whole film as like about a counterfeit world counterfeiting the crime counterfeit relationships counterfeit emotions so you, you definitely when you have that sort of mindset of it that figuratively and literally the counterfeiting is what this movie is about it does definitely kind of read that way that everyone's fake to each other um everyone is sort of you know just on on the cusp of portraying someone else like you don't know again as corny as this is going to sound who is going to live and who is going to die emotionally spiritually physically as well but it, it, it did definitely feel like masters was sort of in some ways like playing vukovic and chance because he gives a line later when they sort of go undercover as doctors to get him on like a hand-to-hand buy after the car chase which obviously we'll talk about in a moment he implies that he knows who they are and Obviously, Bianca's got, you know, this almost this kind of unspoken sea story with Daphne from Frasier as well. So it does feel like everyone's just on dominoes just waiting to tip over. Mm. There's like an imminent, like this kind of like underlying fire in Masters. It does feel like the whole film is just this pending implosion of things waiting to happen. So I I, I think with that in mind, I definitely have the mindset that, you know, his, his card was marked, as you say, as well from from the get-go it's very interesting there's a big question as well that a lot of people ask about this film and uh, pose it here is masters delivers the line to jessup when chance is kind of under his guise and he says i love 
love your work and I'm like how do you guys read that line is that him saying like I know what you're actually doing like maybe he's heard about what happened with the money the kind of car chase because it's kind of post car chase and I think it's like in the same scene as well where he'd kind of you kind of get that mirroring as well where he's asking him if he's wired and like um he says this is this is Jessup he's from Palm Springs even though he hasn't got a tan and he's kind of like basically yeah. says I know this guy's bullshit so mm. yeah how do you kind of read that line do you think do you think Masters knows like that that he's kind of being set up and he knows how deep he's gone how 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 far he's sunk in order to catch him perhaps yeah yeah mm. Mm. yeah because it's that thing of like he probably knows the rules that the secret service are only allowed to give 10 grand for a buy-in and the fact that like he's managed to get that money there's almost like this respect of like you can't you can't really knock the hustle here that he's well he knows that an fbi agent's been killed for it that's that shit's on the news (laughs) i imagine yeah it's it's like holy fucking shit like you really want to get me you want to kill me an fbi agent bad Well, they, well, they do sort of say in the film when um, Chance and Vukovic are trying to basically plead with their, their superior to give him the 30k because they say that the limit is 10, that agents have gotten close to him before, but no one's gotten this close. So I don't think there's any way that Masters is um, unaware of how the Secret Service operates because they're obviously, he's like the high profile counterfeiter in LA at that time. So there's no way he isn't some way in on it. Obviously, he's got, he's got that... Um, what's his face that attorney who is and isn't but then he's sort of double <clears throat> crossing Vukovic and he's working for him so he's gonna have an in to the the, the, law, the lawyer side of it as mm. well but with the reading of that line like I love your work to me there's like there's no way that he doesn't know sort of what's going on and I think it's an interesting thing about Masters because he does have this I don't know this this strange sense of morality in a kind of way like he he has his rules because he's like you know eric masters doesn't negotiate and um, everyone knows this and he's like i'm an easy man to find like i'm in this gym that's a flex in isn't it that's a flex. Yeah. i'm in this gym for four times a week for five years it's like all right fucking chill out, chill out. he's using all those free passes for those secret service agents he's taking in when they're trying to get a deal do you know what I mean? like show me your cock and balls let's see how, let's see let's see how much you want a tango <laughs> that's, that's where you this uh, voice has gone you ever seen a cock with a bicep before jimmy um i imagine he does hog grips at the gym i don't know because the foe has a big penis yeah there's, there's there's no there's no way he doesn't know there's no way he doesn't know because he, he's definitely been a step ahead of like the secret service for a long time as well but which is kind of why it's how like I, I, part of me does did want to find out a bit more i think what we get is enough and sort of perfect in the context of the film but it's an intriguing character that sort of has his thinking but you know uh Darryl, i don't know if you sort of feel the same about masters as well yeah i it's, it's it, i'm kind of glad we 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 get as much of him as we do i it is that thing of like i think he's used sparingly i think otherwise you know if you have too much of me he's just the fucking joker mm. a little bit you know i'm, I'm kind of glad that, i mean like i guarantee mm-hmm. in like five years time cbs yeah. or somebody will do like a prequel series with that fucking character or something but but yeah <laughs> I, I i really I, I really dig the amount of him we do get i also love the fact that like both he and william P, uh, and william 
Peterson's character, they're they're um they're fallible. Like they get the shit kicked out of them. Like the pair of them do. Like I love that. Like you wouldn't see that in a yeah. fucking Fast and Furious mm. film these days. I, I love that. I, I I really do. Like that <laughs> Wonderful gets like gets like you know smacked around two or three times. Once by Stephen fucking James. Like Steve James is a legend of like white guy karate summer movies. He's you know awesome. He's in the American Kickboxer films and a whole bunch of other shit. And he's in this film. Yeah, he's great. But uh, but yeah, also like John Turturro just managing to, to get the drop on Peterson is is fucking great. This is a perfect time to talk about like them as cops or secret service agents. What do we think of their skills as kind of men of the law? Because uh, from my standpoint, they're pretty fucking shit. Yeah. <laughs> if they'd have established that Peterson was like very live fast, die young, and yeah. he was in over his head and he was like snorting a shit ton of coke every morning with his cornflakes or something, and he was that kind of cop, I could kind of forgive him the slip with Totoro in the hospital. But as it stands, it's just like, mate, like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, good grief. Yeah, they're yeah. on a stakeout and they, they both fall asleep on the stakeout. Yeah. Like, they kind of wake up, like, kind of like, oh shit, oh shit, like something's gone down. Yeah, like, yeah I mean, obviously, it's, it's kind of good cop, bad cop di- dynamic, isn't it? Obviously, Vukovic is uh, really meant to be more of this sort of the straight lay sort of mm. good cop. And then Chance is the guy who's, you know, obviously avenging his dead partner. And that, as the film obviously establishes from early doors, like this guy is, I guess, nature's coke. He is an adrenaline yeah. junkie. He's base jumping. Um, he's getting, I suppose he's getting sloppier and sloppier really as the film goes along because he doesn't really care what sort of happens to him as long as he's getting that fucking buzz from it. Obviously, we see, we see you see his fucking face close up during like that incredibly heart-pounding like car chase sequence. There's that bit where, obviously, as you said, Petros, they're doing that stakeout. Obviously, they fuck it up but he takes what's got max waxman he takes like his diary or something yeah. so he's like oh. but this is the thing that like, vukovic like has a chance to turn him in and i suppose this is another thing like no one turns anyone else in mm. um cody uh, john Turturro's character has the chance to turn in uh masters but doesn't do it vukovic has like the opportunity and with the attorney as well to turn in chance but he won't do it so everyone everyone really like i said earlier is just playing fast and loose with their own lives and it comes into you know their own lives and how they do their jobs as well and um, that's what makes it kind of so palpable that every fucking person in this film is a ticking time bomb mm. which is just kind of the, the rewatchability about it as well which is just it, it's just like the, the relationships are just so fascinating for me in this when is the moment when you kind of realized that uh chance is a bad guy is, is there like a moment where you're gone he's he's gonna step too far hmm it's interesting. I mean, I'd probably have to think about this one because it, it, it's quite a slow build. When, when I think by the time it happens, you don't really realise that it's kind of happened mm. because it's so sort of effectively done. But I'm going to cowardly just sidestep and base jump whilst Daryl, you feel this one. You know what? Like, part of it is, like, he's, he's done some shitty things, but it's when his informant lady friend who he's you know we've we've already i mean we've already seen his like we've already seen his wang chung on screen and then she <laughs> says like if i stop feeding you information what would you do just out of interests 
And he was just like, I would, I would, you know, I'd fuck you over to your parole officer. And like the look in his eyes, that that yeah. expression was just like, oh, you're the fucking yeah. devil. Like, oh shit. Like, I don't, yeah, yeah, exactly. The thing Daryl you were saying earlier, who am I rooting <laughs> for here? Like, seriously, at least um, Masters yeah. has got a, a specific artistic code, say, you know. Yeah, whereas, whereas Chance, he, he's just lacking in anything behind the eyes by that point. Yeah, when she asked him as well, like about the money, right? Like she says, like oh, I, I need like you need to be paying me a bit more for this information. Like I think there's illusions, like an off-screen sun that she doesn't get to see, and she's like, I kind of, I kind of need, I, yeah. I, 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 I need more money. And just his re- his response is like, if if you want bread, then fuck a baker. And it's like, what a fucking heartless <laughs> cunt. Like, <laughs> like yeah, like it kind of goes downhill from there right like how do you, how do you guys feel about that scene with the fbi agent like because what re-watching it for this i was kind of like i felt sick watching it yeah. just like kind of knowing how it's going to transpire uh-huh. and what like what they're doing i mean that scene it's like it, it's one of the, the the biggest talking points about the scene because a lot of people who know of this movie one of the things that you sort of talk about is that car chase scene where a lot of people will highly regard as one of arguably the best car chase scenes ever committed to film but obviously this this sort of comes at a point where they are sort of so desperate to catch masters that and i think obviously ruth as well because obviously she's in this you know what is it, a sexually exploitative relationship mm. with chance as well says well i've got nothing else on counterfeiting but i can give you this guy who's coming in to buy some diamonds illegally so they use that information they're going to sort of intercept that take the money but then it's you know, you've got Wang Chung just like pounding away and Chance comes in with a gun to the back. And then they're in that sort of, that underpass as well where Chance is just like pounding that briefcase about against like the bridge as well. And so I, I saw like the interesting thing about that scene, something that Friedkin does is like, he wouldn't tell the actors like when he was actually filming, he would just tell them they were doing rehearsals. So that scene they thought was just rehearsal. Peterson was just kept hammering and hammering and hammering the way at the briefcase it exploded and then they were like well he's not yelled cut yet so i guess we keep going <laughs> so they so they just had to improvise that scene but then obviously it, it's just that kind of out of nowhere chain reaction of like the other sort of fbi agents start firing down he gets distracted by the car crash shoots that guy in the back what a way to die though with your pants around your oh, yeah. and shot in the back fuck me no good. god imagine being like the one who has to deliver the news to his family <laughs> fucking hell but it's it I think this is kind of like the most obvious example of like how far Chance and Vukovic have descended. I mean, at this point, Vukovic still has like a semblance of his morality because he's he in the back of that car was kind of how I felt watching the car chase scene Mm. where I was having a basically a panic attack watching (laughs) that car chase scene because it's so fucking hectic. But it's it's yeah, just a visual representation for you to think of just how chaotic all of these sort of tangled webs have become. Daryl, I suppose, like I don't know, like did did you have to like stop and have a glass of water because that car chase scene made you just on the point of jumping out a window like it did for me? It's it's pretty fucking intense. I mean, this is that's that's two for two with Friedkin. What with you know the French Connection and him, the way he shot a car car chase there, something that had really hadn't been done before, and to to get 
like how do you top that well we're just oncoming traffic for an inordinate amount of time and yeah it's i i was sitting the last night and just just my heart was kind of racing i was like oh this this is how this should be because it's real people in real vehicles doing real things you know it's not like today where a lot of it would just be you know ones and zeros on the screen cg bullshit this is like oh this is actually fucking happening and and that that there's a commitment to that 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 still freaks you out i think you know there's there's a it's palpable it's tangible it's right there yeah freaky fucking shit i love it and it, i i love the way that that scene's put together as well is for like real nerds who've like looked into it they figured out that they had the they had the high i think it took six weeks to shoot and they had the highway for like a weekend mm. or something like that to get to get some to get yeah just the the the, the freeway stuff uh and they he turned the traffic around for where it should usually be so he had the cars going the other so they're basically driving on the english side of the road as opposed right. to the american side just because friedkin was like oh i like i like the stuff in the background we're getting going this way and it was william peterson actually driving so there wasn't much acting for John Pankow to do because it's like he would get the call sheet in the morning, hear what they were planning to do from the stunt team and then just kind of sat in the back of the car going, fuck, like William Peterson is a is a theatre actor. He's not a stuntman. <laughs> yeah. That's a trust exercise right there, like trusting your stuntman. Definitely. I've got to mention the ADR of John Pankow as well. <laughs> Because I couldn't tell if he was like having an anxiety attack or an orgasm. Just he's going, there's there's no real way to know what emotion was happening right there. But either way, it hit me on a deep level, and I felt it. There's again hashtag not an ad, but on the Blu-ray, there's loads of in-depth stuff about how they did all that car chase stuff. One of the interesting, there's like close-ups that they do when obviously they're kind of like swerving around and stuff, and a really like practical way that they basically put the chassis of like a car on the back of like a trailer tow and built these hydraulics into it so it would just move them left and right whilst they were just driving forward but it's so effectively done that you just have to like feel that your own heart rate and you've got 111 ready to dial in your mobile phone on the other hand you know cause of death cinema being too fucking cool <laughs> um <laughs> But it's just just great stuff, just really, really great stuff. And it makes me, you know, upset that even now I still can't drive because if I did, I'd be swerving the wrong way in traffic for a fucking buzz, baby. <laughs> um, again, Secret Service, if you're listening, I, I won't, I won't do that. I won't probably. I think what's really interesting is the way that that scene ends with them kind of like in this like back alley. Like Vukovic is like rightfully shitting his pants, and like Chance is like, "Hey, we'll just take this to the auto shop, get a new window," and then like just to kind of I don't know, it kind of like punctuates the the weirdness of things that are going on. I'm not sure if you guys picked up two on this. black geezers with a boombox. Yeah, two black geezers with a boombox. It's like what <laughs> is going on? It's such like a such a kind of surreal moment within the film i was like what is, is this friedkin just like this is actually happening fuck it we're just gonna yeah, roll yeah. with this and we'll, we'll we'll fix it in post we'll, we'll do we'll do some adr stuff like with that those guys but yeah it's just some people got to keep on living in la you know yeah. whilst vukovic and chance are dying they've got to keep <laughs> on living i think it's fantastic stuff like it's it, it's just one of so like many sort of highlights in the film for me um it's kind of like interesting because like in some ways the car chase isn't necessarily connected to the exact plot of what's going on 
it's kind of like connected to a B story of them trying to get back to the A story, but I'm fucking glad it's there. Mm. It'd be a much lesser film if it wasn't. And I'd, I, th- I think, you know, Fast and Furious, how dare you take like the fire away from films like this? We should still be talking about To Live and Die in LA, wow. but we're talking about <clears throat> yeah. however it is that Vin Diesel... Vin Diesel fucking says it as well. No, you're right. It's like it's that it's it's that aesthetic and everything there as well, right? So whether it's Freakin with this or it's Michael Mann with mm, with Heat sure. or anything else, like we've it's kind of we've lost something in the last I'd say 25 mm. years. Like I'd say for me, like something like L.A. Confidential, which yeah is a period set film, but based on obviously like more of the vibe of James Elroy's novel. It's like it it's not the novel at all but it's a really good adaptation in the sense it gets the tone but that's the tone here it's just like everybody's a shit no matter who you are everybody's a shit if you're a cop you're a shit you know a cab and like and and all the villains are clearly shits as well so it's okay and i think yeah we kind of lost something maybe in the late 90s early aughts well they they tried to kind of gloss over this film at the time as well because there's i'm not sure if you you caught this daryl there's an alternative ending for this film to kind of make it a bit more easy breezy and like palatable for like a mainstream audience audience are you aware of this uh this scene that's tacked on that they i don't think ever saw the light of day in cinemas or but it's, it's available online <laughs> I, I meant i meant you daryl bear all oh, right no i i know of it i you know i know of it i've i've read the you know i, I read the wikipedia cover to cover but uh the entire thing like i know everything now but no um but but yeah i uh, i knew of it i just was like kind of recoil at shit like that generally anyway it's like was it was it like he basically gets busted down or something they get sent to alaska on kind yeah. of like do you know what I mean like slap on That's the a wrist happier ending of right? like you know yeah, yeah they they reshoot they reshoot the shot of him getting shot in the in the face to in the chest at point blank range of a shotgun, shotgun. Which i'm pretty sure even if you got shot in the chest you would uh-huh. be dead yeah, yeah. <laughs> those those 80s shotguns just hit different it's it's like watching that alternative like ending as well like you can you can palpably tell that everyone involved in having to make it because the studios forced their hand fucking resented mm. it and there's just like a bit of text on screen as well it says like oh due to staffing shortages chance and vukovic got shipped out to alaska and then it's just like wang shung ding 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 like you want to sound like fuck off to that end yeah they even recorded like new new stuff for the titles as well at the end so it's like the kind of the alaskan wilderness like the camera kind of panning out and like the the end credits as opposed to just kind of the shots of la we get in the in the credits here which is fantastic like i love that this film is so nihilistic in the way that it goes out and the fact that like it seeds it throughout right so we get obviously his partner dying at the beginning we think it's one movie the partner dies then it turns into another film and then they're kind of like a seeding uh vukovic as like he kind of does more and more and we kind of see his and by the end he's the one kind of having the the ultimate face off of the bad guy right do you guys think it does that a really interesting switcheroo there in the, yeah it's... we think one guy's the the protagonist and actually it was it was vukovic all along yeah yeah, I, 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 I like that. I like that. I kind of like I wish we I, I wish if anything we had more Vukovic. I know there's a, a scene that was deleted 
and Friedkin kind of regrets cutting it from the film, which was before the kind of confrontation with Masters at the end, Vukovic was gonna he like pleads with his ex wife to kind of like maybe get back together with her. And it kind of like I think with that gives us more of a sense of who that guy is. May I, I guess it's probably cut because he's supposed to be on this downward trajectory to being an absolute shit, but I don't know. I think that maybe would have given him more of a fact that, like, he made this last ditched attempt and then his soul completely goes that night as he watches Masters burn alive, basically. Yeah, it's it's so an affecting ending. Like, I, I did watch that deleted scene as well. Obviously, as you said, Freakin himself said, I have no idea why I took this out. And if I had the opportunity, I'd put the scene back into the movie. But I, I think it's, I think it goes to show by this point, let how far Vukovic has fallen because of this because of this case that is on that he now also can't maintain a normal sort of healthy relationship like chance has already gone over that cliff um he's quite literally sort of a metaphorically sort of base jumping in a free fall Vukovic is not too far behind him but I, I think it would have worked to sort of keep it back in and then obviously you know by the end of it it is that shocking thing where chance gets so suddenly blasted in the face where like you don't see it coming him and is it it's master's like bodyguard or something yeah (laughs) goon they they shoot each other and then it's vukovic chasing after masters and then just that you know that's kind of like just almost eerie thing where they're in in the warehouse at the end and masters is just kind of sitting down amongst all the fire as well which is it's i think as you said like that it's just very symbolic of like everyone's watched this world and their own lives burn down around them and now here they are Mm. in terms of like vukovic becoming like like the full-blown douche at the end of it he's (laughs) To the point where he's literally dressing like Chance as well. Taking his car, right? Um, He's got it all. He's taking his car. He's parking where Chance would park in his car as well. He's got the aviator sunglasses, the leather jacket, which I also suppose, you know, on on a side tangent here, what, what happened to the days when cops just dressed in just fucking leather jackets and open shirts like that? Where do we go wrong? <laughs> I mean, like, you know, A-Cab and all that, all counterfeiters are bastards, but where where did we where did we fall so where did we fall so far from God's light? Yeah. That's what I want to know. I don't know if we've got the answers on, on this podcast of all places, but you know, maybe maybe it would go a ways to sort of helping helping the um the police officer image if that's how they, if that's how they start dressing again that's my pitch that's my pitch for the world a very you know very affecting ending though that you you kill someone like a chance for a masters but there's always someone else to take their place mm. it's just this violent cycle that's just going to keep repeating sort of over and over again like obviously like daryl for yourself you know that sort of build to the ending the ending as well the the, the vukovic reveal you know how, how did it all work for you it's 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 weird it's like it's a little jarring how quickly he does turn there but in a kind of a good way let's say in in that like you do feel yeah. like there is a chance shape hole i mean it's, it's through his face but like you definitely feel like it's just something missing there <laughs> by the time you get to the end of the film and like and it's 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 odd reassuring because you've watched this bastard throughout the entire runtime and again it's like you're rooting for all the bastards and like to know that he's gone you're like right well who the fuck am i rooting for now oh it's this clown who's got the car and the jacket and he's being a shit to julie and blah 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 and all that yeah it's like 
like cynically minded like today you would you would have released a sequel like you know 18 months later but but yeah i'm kind of glad it's just we get this 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 horrible punchline to what we've just witnessed it's it's great and awful all at once there's almost like a specter of of chance looming over right we get that shot used and it's like that that shot of william peterson looking like he's like i mean been on a coke binge for like 72 hours straight just kind of in front of the blinds just like like if if if, if an image had a sound it would be like that like and and if you watch the film right right till the end of the credits as well that that shot pops back up again and he's i don't know he's almost like a something like out of a horror film do you know what i mean it's like vukovic is possessed by the spirit of chance at the end pazuzu vukovic yeah oh yeah that's the sequel we want right shared universe (laughs) (laughs) apparently there was talk about adapting it into a tv series but it's been just in development for about 10 years now i think so yeah don't don't make it don't make it just give us this um a question a touch point i wanted to bring up because i think it's it's kind of kind of interesting with this film especially in relation to friedkin's earlier work with something like especially cruising is the kind of homoerotic undertones to this film and an element of like queer baiting to to a degree because we get we get that scene of bianca when she comes Ooh. off of the like stage and we see we see her kind of coming oh she didn't cover stage you just kind of see this this person from the back short hair walking towards masters and kissing and like it's all like it's kind of like playing with that thing of like oh for a moment it's not until we get the reverse shot and go oh it's it's bianca it's it's a female character that it could be a man and there's like scenes between william peterson and willem dafoe where he's like kind of feels like very purposely shot that it's from like above the waist and he's like oh is this for me and it almost looks like he's like grabbing his crotch and yeah, like the kind 100%. of use of terms like oh you're beautiful and there's there's yeah. a very there's very like yeah. kind of yeah i think there's a fluidity to masters sexuality that the i think the film rightfully just kind of like yeah it could be a thing it doesn't it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be a thing some people are bisexual and i think Ma- masters masters probably does fall into that camp obviously we get the the kind of reveal of uh jane leaves as as bianca's lover at the end as well like yeah what, what did you kind of think did, did, do you have like any reservations to the kind of homoeroticism or are you kind of or, or, all for it or yeah what were you what are your reads on it um I, I think it certainly worked for the for the character of masters as well i mean i'd, I'd sort of read something sort of I, I guess speaking more widely of like freaking obviously he'd made um what was it with alfredina cruising. cruising was it yeah. a few years prior and i know that got a lot of flack for painting uh sort of the the, the, the gay subculture of new york he sort of painted that in quite a negative light so um i know he, he said he wasn't intended to be sort of homophobic in intent but it sort of made me wonder in the back of my mind you know was there anything sort of more subtle in this film with him i don't know like trying to atone for that or sort of maybe apologize for the way it was perceived potentially but certainly in terms of this as well it's like i mean i mean it all there was no sort of it didn't feel like this was just a a thing added on to make the character just have an extra layer or for lack of a better term an angle so to speak but i thought it i I thought it worked um i I thought it worked for the character as well you know going around kissing mimes um in la you know what what a life what a life to have yeah 100 it's it's um it's that fluidity is is quite 
quite present on screen and it's like he's part of that very specific art world as well and you know his his lady Mm -hmm. friend is you know she's a exotic dancer you know in quotation marks which in the 80s meant basically a lot of the times writhing around with a python with your tits out um so there's there's definitely like a something you know kicking off there but then also the entire troop you get the idea that they're all intertwined and fucking on the reg like that's fine it's okay you know you can get away with that i think the thing the the perspective that we don't quite get though today is the fact that come 1985 it being you know 1981 with kind of the aids epidemic like to to see Mm -hmm. this this very specific pervasive culture uh, around that and them all being kind of it's free baby and still kind of living by that there's there's a certain like living on the edge kind of that mm-hmm. is um it must have seemed um if you were a bit like a kind of conservative viewer of this it must have seemed somewhat insidious maybe and making him more of a villain in that sense is his kind of avert sexuality but yeah. i think you know with 2020 vision on um it kind of it, I, kind of, I think the lens is a little different for us and I think that's what kind of gives us the perspective we have. Definitely. Yeah, you'd have people who would kind of be like forgiving of Chance's kind of basic sexual exploitation to be like, well, at least he's not at least he's not like Masters and his kind of fluid yeah. sexual deviancy. Do you know what I mean? Like of the mm-hmm. time and like that, that that that's what that's what's kind of interesting about this film is like how it kind of I don't know, I think it's a, a, a middle finger up to kind of Reagan's 100%. America, right? the way it portrays the Secret Service, the, w- the way it shows us that two sides of the same coin, good and bad, are just both as bad as each other. Like the, the counterfeiter mm. is just as bad, if not sometimes justifiably better than than the people who are sent sent out after him, which is kind of, yeah, it's, it's great. It's, it's, this film, I think, for me, just really just i know it's, a, it's an overused word but it's just it captures a vibe and i kind of hate i kind of sure, hate that word sure. but there is just like a kind of a malaise about it that it's just mm-hmm. like yeah i kind of want to see more of this but i'm kind of i'm glad that it is this kind of distilled gem that it is do you know what i mean i don't want i don't want sequels i don't want the extended <laughs> universe it's kind of i, I, I glad, just want to watch this film again I'm glad and again and again other films that that are similar in some respects to this. And again, I mentioned earlier, like Beverly Hills Cop 2, I think, touches upon that. I think uh, Michael Mann's Manhunter and Heat touch upon it. Uh, LA Confidential, you know, as well. Curtis Hansen, you know, but like, there are other films that are similar, but not, we don't have that, that, you know, luckily we never had a sequel. Luckily that TV show died in the, and he said died at birth, that's horrific. But like, (laughs) you know, never saw the light of day. And that's that's, that's a real positive, I think. just let these things be their thing. You know, let Friedkin go off and make fucking weird shit and, and you know, be done with it, really. Never saw the light of day, foe. Mm. Um, <laughs> I mean, certainly, certainly speaking of light of foe, part of me sort of thought, because th- there was a very, very brief thing they touched on about his character of Masters, and it's only very, very slightly alluded to in the movie. But right at the end, like after everyone's fucking died and switched places and morality and stuff, and they've, they've gone back to um, Masters' house, there's the attorney guy who gives um, Bianca like that tape, mm. which I, I think it's meant to be implied to be like a, a sex yeah. tape. Oh, yeah, it yeah. is a sex tape. So yeah. it, it sort of makes 
we wonder sort of touching on like you know the potential homoeroticism um implied in the movie and his sort of i guess implied bisexuality as well was like him just having these relationships with other people sort of part part of i guess like what he would into like a performance aspect for himself as well because he definitely tapes these i would say with the way those shots are you only seen for a split second mm. but there's an artistic value in sort of sexuality of him, I think, is well, he's, he's, well. There's a scene and he's the watching the tape yeah. as they're having sex. Yeah, 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 yeah. One hundred percent, he's fucking. It's, cool. it's, yeah, it's cool. American Psycho. Yeah. yeah. And there's a there's, <laughs> there's that weird mirroring as well that like he's watching himself have sex, and then we get Ruth is wearing Chance's shirt, and it is mm. this kind of thing of like these. I don't know the, the the this thing of like these are guys who just want to fuck themselves and like there is moments like there is that moment where he takes the money belt and I'm like just fucking kiss yeah, yeah. do you know what I mean like chance and masters I'm like just 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 give us what we want like the, yeah. the sexual tension <laughs> is at boiling point and I just start smashing see two Kendalls together and William yeah. Peterson go at it oh yeah give it to me give it yeah give me <laughs> give me that stuff if there's any if there, <laughs> I wish that there was like rumoured deleted footage of this uh, like like cruising where it's like yeah they. We, we, the one thing I did read was that um, when it came to the chance scene with Julie um the, the kind of sex there that Friedkin just said, like, make it look real. But they must have edited that to within an inch of its life because we don't really get any of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think he, he, his direction was just, like, surprise me or something like that. And then this this is a time before, I think a lot long before, the, there was the intimacy oh, on set as well. It's like, I don't care if you actually if you actually fuck or just start doing fucking squats on each other, the camera's rolling, motherfuckers. Give me something. Time yeah. is money. Time is money, baby. Give me something. If it if it, if it means actual intercourse, just give it to me. I, like, do you mean, we're burning light this here. A, we're burning film. This is a non-union production. <laughs> we can do whatever the fuck we want. Yeah. People. Don't just let your dreams be dreams. Don't just let your dreams be dreams. Just, just, I think just all of it, just from start to finish, just an, an interesting production. The production is interesting. The characters are interesting. Like the action and the stakes are interesting. You know, and I don't want to start sort of splurging about like final thoughts or anything because obviously, Petros, we do have, um, you know, some other sort of bits of business to attend to pertaining to our boy, Mr. Willem Dafoe as well. And we ask... With all our guests, uh, does he do deface? Does Willem do a classic Defoe face? So, uh, Petros, did you clock any Defoe faces in this one of note? Um, I don't know. Nothing, nothing really kind of sticks out. I think it, for, for, for Defoe and kind of like him doing like wild, there's no rictus grins or anything like that. Mm-hmm. He is kind of like pared down a bit and he's kind of like level headed. I don't know. Nothing, no, yeah, nothing really. I, I, I was probably just more mesmerised with his little pert bum. Do you know what I mean? Or, or, <laughs> or, or, or him naked. Even when he's having sex, oh, yeah. he's kind of like, he's into it. He's not really like, he's not really giving, mm-hmm. uh, you don't get O faces or anything like that. I don't know, yeah. What, 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 what about what about you, Daryl? Did you did you notice any, any facial acting from our um, boy? For me, it was the laughter <laughs> with, um, when when he says, I love your work. And then he starts laughing, but it's a very specific 
laugh. It feels yes. like a real laugh. Sure. You know, we've had lots of Defoe laughs over the years, but this yes. one felt like like an honest laugh. As and it's it's kind of uneasy because it's so honest as well. And you see the two women in the room also kind of like you know maniacal laugh, maniacal laugh, and he's and they're just like, oh, yeah, shit. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, I, I I really that that's I was I found that really unnerving a second time round. Like yeah, it's fucked. Mm-hmm. Daryl, thank you, Daryl. <laughs> see how easy that is, Petros. Yeah, you see how easy that say. is. Um, <laughs> I would say, in the grand scheme of the movie, I don't think there's any massively notable Defoe de faces um, of, of the GIF variety. Although, I suppose if we're going to make a notable exception, possibly you know him counting his thirty thousand whilst laughing on a, a a gym bench or whatever it was that they were sat in there. So, but, but broadly speaking, I'd, I would probably say no. No, to face he's got some absolute right humdinger lines though, isn't he? Like one that stands out for me. And it's kind of like, and and to find out that it was a Defoe ad lib is absolute magic for me. Is when before he shoots Waxman, he he picks up a kind of piece of African art, and mm. it's like, oh, 1800s Congo. Your taste is in your ass, and it's like, what a line! What does that even mean? Your taste is in your ass, like, and I, I, I love the kind of bit of trivia around it as well. That he found out that that actually belonged to William Friedkin, like that was a piece of his actual art. So inadvertently, as the character, he's insulted William Friedkin's taste in African art. <laughs> Fantastic, fan- fantastic stuff. But and I suppose for our, our next portion of this defining Defoe roundtable as well, uh, this is the point where we give our um, our ratings on the film. Um, so instead of like a thumbs up or a thumbs down, we offer: Does this movie get a rating of friend, or does he get a rating of Defoe? I say our guest uh, Daryl first for you to live and die in LA of 1985. Defriend or Defoe? Oh, this is a Defriend film, like straight up. Uh, yeah, I I think I think every May now I need to watch this film. I'm just gonna make <laughs> just gonna make it a thing like Christmas. It's fucking great. He's great. I might make May my Defoe month. <laughs> Ooh, I like yeah. that. I like that a lot. Uh, Petros, of course, for you, same question: t- uh, to live and die in LA, Defriend or Defoe? Oh, it's very much a Defriend for me. Like it's as much as Willem is Defoe in this film. Uh, the film is is a, is a is a is a friend for me. It's uh, yeah. It's as I said. It's kind of aesthetically. It's really kind of lush, and it's got a grime to it that I really dig in 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 films. It's kind of got this this term that the big picture podcast coined, which is the prestige scumbag. And I kind of really that's like visual and kind of store like character crack for me so yeah the, the works of michael mann so like thief i absolutely love even like friedkin's early stuff like sorcerer like just these kind of God, yeah. scumbaggy characters or like i love the godfather obviously they're all kind of scumbags to some degree or paul schrader's work like uh, hardcore and yeah like those kind of like 70s into 80s directors kind of doing these portrayals of these people who i don't know i guess it's that thing we don't get to see people like this on screen not in film anyway we're going to get this kind of move to the small screen like obviously as as we're speaking we're a couple of like weeks out from the end of succession which is like a show that is just like arseholes upon arseholes upon arseholes of, of people and like how despicable they are. But I think there's something 
really interesting to be able to to get someone to root for a character in the space of two hours i think it's kind of a cheat code to do it over three four seasons like six seasons do you know what i mean like to be able to get 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 you to root for someone like chance in the space of the hour 50 runtime of this movie is a real skill yeah it's it's i mean i think i absolutely agree with everything you've you've both said in sort of the wrap-ups on this i think it needless needless to say for me this is a um uh, a, a mighty large uh defriend from me as well with three for three other friends on this one and i think having viewed this i sort of spoiled myself and viewed this about you know twice in the space of a few days i think i fucking love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> i fucking love this movie and i i already know now based on my listening habits from the past like three days from the point of recording wang chung is going to feature so oh, yeah. heavily on my spotify yes it's such it's such a sick soundtrack it has no you can't get away daryl you're going to be living and dying in la god i hope so (laughs) and you know i guess with with wang chung considering that they they did not see the movie they were just given like brief descriptions about the film when they were writing the soundtrack for it and they come out with bangers Mm. like that fuck off not all unacceptably good stuff but yeah yeah i think this is it's a down and dirty gritty film and i know this is kind of one of those things those phrases that can get thrown around a little too much but this for me does kind of fit into one of those you know best movies you've never seen mm-hmm. kind of categories yeah and you know the point of recording we're coming up to like what's like the 40th 40 years since this nearly movie yeah, yeah, yeah a couple so, of years mm-hmm. out yeah so hopefully by the time the 40th anniversary rolls around, hopefully, let's get fucking Wang Chung on the podcast. Why not? Do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what, what, what a goal to have. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's just a brilliant piece of cinema. And the fact more people aren't talking about it makes me fucking mm. sick. So on that on that heady vomit-laced bombshell, um, I think it's certainly time to start wrapping up here to live and die in LA. And, you know, for this past hour and a half or so, I think we've been fucking living. I think we've been fucking living. Um, to, you know, to throw it out there um, for both yourselves, Daryl Petros. Any any sort of final thoughts? Any sort of final ads to to share about uh, share about this one as well? It's just fucking ace. It looks brilliant. Like again, like it's beautifully shot, and and that that soundtrack just 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 perfectly like. Uh, they work like synergistically together in a way that like is we don't very often see now um and yeah like this is a film that is a product of its time in that regard but again i think it's the better for it like this is one film that you could go oh it's very misogynistic and it's approach towards yeah. women but i'm like no it just it, it's nihilistic it hates everybody everybody's an absolute shithead yeah. in this and and i and i i i, I dig that I think we don't get enough of that in film. I think you're right. I think we get it in telly quite a bit now. And I think that's why people are so like absorbed in telly. But like, I, I was kind of amazed early on when you, you brought up the uh, box office for this and, and where it sat for the year. Um, I'm really surprised that it didn't do better than it did. I think that's probably got a lot to do with the total lack of money they spent on marketing it more than anything. Because this is the sort of thing that even like five, yes. six years earlier, it would have, you know, you know, we'd have, we'd have lapped this up. But yeah, odd one. But yeah, a fucking amazing film. Uh, and for you, Petros, any final? Oh yeah, final thoughts on the. Sorry, film? I was supposed to speak, wasn't I? Um... <laughs> <laughs> Edit. 
Um, no, I think I've said everything I kind of need to say on this film. It, it is massively underseen, and mm. it's one that just kind of isn't available anywhere no. digitally, apart from the kind of Shout Factory release in the US or the Arrow Blu-ray here in the UK. It's not even on the Arrow channel, is it? No, and I think I think uh, Kino Loba are putting it out in 4K later on this year, so Ooh. any American listeners snap it up because mm. if if this film yeah give us that robbie muller cinematography in 4k baby the oh, beautiful oh, thing about oh, 4k is it's not region locked so anybody can get that yeah there you but go just there fucking you. get on it like seriously it's absolutely worth your time absolutely i think it's fair to say seek this one out by hook or by crook because it's absolutely worth your time and you will not look back at all but certainly with that all said and done daryl bear thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk about To Live and Die in LA with us. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you um, on Getting Defoe You, and hopefully we've all got to know Defoe a little bit better today. For the listeners, uh, you know, where can we find your good self on, on the socials right. and such as well? So I'm the one lurking behind SDD Film Podcast on Twitter, and that's for Sudden Double Deep, the Triple Bill title podcast. And on that show, we watch three films linked by a word in the title. And uh, I'm also over on our other podcast, Is Paul Dano OK?, where we've gone through the entire filmography and basically nearly everything that Paul Franklin Dano has done, including his Hot Ones episode, which we <laughs> which we reviewed whilst eating <laughs> spicy wings. Um, we, we also got like um, basically like side seasons as we wait for Paul to like get a bunch more shit done. So um, our, our it's, it's upcoming at the moment, but I think it's going to be like just about there by the time you guys start is uh, our second, a second um, side cast that we've done we, we did judy greer uh the back end of last year and we're now doing a season on clancy brown oh love that will be getting my ears all over that one of course all the links in the description wherever it is you get your podcasts of course uh go and check out sudden double deep and is paul dano okay wonderful podcast with wonderful people but with that said and done it's time to watch the sunset over la town <laughs> And what it's left for me to say is, I've been Daryl. I've been Petros. And I've been Daryl. And we've been getting to for you. And there we have it. Episode three in the bag. Episode three printed on not counterfeit paper. The real stuff. There's no counterfeit emotions about what we just discussed in there. Um, and I think it's fair to say, I fucking love this movie. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! It's my whole personality now. I am, I'm all for the scumbags. I'm, I'm, give me Gilliam, give me William Peterson, give me William Defoe, give me just, give me Wang Chung until I absolutely explode. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I. This is this is just this is crack cinema for me, baby. And you would have heard it in our conversation. With Daryl there. Not this Daryl, the other Daryl. See how confusing it is, guys? <laughs> Bear an edge. Bear an edge. Yeah, <laughs> not long after we recorded so, the episode and we, you know, we'd we'd hit stop on our respective recordings. We figured out that we should have probably used our surnames for the sake of ease, and we didn't do that. Um because clearly we are too high on the printing ink 
uh, of this operation that we call a podcast. But I think it's fair to say that I adore this movie. I'm very glad that I sort of got it on Blu-ray. I'll be scouring for the soundtrack uh, for the rest of my life on vinyl. And I think, uh, you know, the fact we're not still talking about this movie today is a goddamn crime against cinema. But, you know, we're coming up to the 40th anniversary and hopefully... Uh, this gets a bit of resurgence of love, which would be delightful. Reappraisal, baby, reappraisal. Until then, as we say at the beginning of the episode, but we're going to remind you here at the end where to find us. So head on over to at DefoeUPod on Twitter and Instagram to be the friends. We don't want you to be Defoes, especially we don't want mm-hmm. you to be a Defoe when you're leaving us a five-star rating. Oh. You heard that right. None of this, none of this Defoe bullshit one stars. We want to be the friends of the podcast. Leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, or wherever you're listening to this right now. Or drop us an email. You can do that, defoeupod at gmail.com. But with that said, Petros, what is coming up next week? And who have we got joining us? Next week, we are joined by the ever-knowledgeable and delightful, if I do say so myself. Well, I do say so myself, because what I w- I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about our wonderful guest, aren't I, Daryl? Who is Russell Bailey from the Always Great Not Just For Kids podcast. And we'll be taking a little dive into the world of espionage, the pages of a John Grisham novel with 1994's clear and present danger. Oh, yes. From the Secret Service to the CIA, baby, we are going in. Uh, guns are blazing. So we can't wait to have you join us for that one next week, where, as ever, we'll be covering the de highs, the de lows, the, the all things Willem Defoe, right here on Getting Defoe You, the dedicated Defoe podcast. But we will see you then. But until then... Until then, take care of yourselves. Goodbye. We'll catch you later. Getting to know you, getting to know all about Willem. Getting to like you by watching all your films. Getting to know you, we'll start with Heaven's Gate. And we'll watch them all. Till the present day